oh my! Look at that fish! So, uh, welcome to the Smalley Talk Podcast. This is your host, Chris Vaughn. Uh, flying solo, you know, tonight, Josh was planning on uh, doing the episode today, but when it came down to it, he had to go get a boat, so I didn't bother him. Uh, I wanted him to be able to go get his boat so that he could take me fishing. Um, so, on the phone... I have a guide from here in Indiana, uh, probably well-known in the Indiana fly fishing community, um, and of course with the worldwide reach of the Smalley Talk podcast, soon to be internationally known, uh, Chad Miller. Chad, hello. Hi. Hey. How are you? Doing great. Thanks for uh, being on the call. Had a little bit of a frustrating time getting... Uh, getting hooked up here chad uh living that guide life uh ruined his phone today in a rainstorm <laughs> and then my wife got called into work about uh at seven o'clock uh for some uh emergency birth stuff so uh, obviously for some reason the people that she works with think that high-risk deliveries for babies takes priority over my podcast. I don't understand really what, yeah. I don't understand that. But I, yeah, I guess that's where they're coming from. So, uh, but anyways, we got it, we got it hooked up. We're here now. Um, you might hear my kids come in and me scream at them at some point, but uh, specifically we wanted to have Chad on the podcast, first of all, because he's a, uh, he's been guiding here in Indiana for a long time. Um but specifically because we're coming up on one of my favorite times of the year for smallmouth bass, and that's uh, you know the late summer, early fall time period, wherein a lot of people, and it's becoming more and more popular, thanks, thanks in part to Chad, uh, are fishing terrestrials uh, for smallmouth. So Chad is kind of, I would say, I would say it's fair to say that you're most known uh for your contribution in the terrestrial smallmouth fishing game is that is that fair to say yeah i think that's probably fair to say it's okay. the thing that um you know we we're, i'm probably the busiest as a guy during that terrestrial season so that probably speaks for itself <laughs> yeah right okay uh well, well let's kind of get into your background a little bit because you've been um you're what a, a third generation fly fisherman out there in western Indiana and specifically on Sugar Creek. Is that is that right? Yeah, I'm I'm the third, and my son Stone is the fourth. Right, yeah. and Stone is uh, you know becoming a you know a guide in his own right. He's where? What's he doing now? Where's he at? He works in Montana, and he lives in Dillon. He he guides the Beaverhead, the Big Hole, and Jefferson. Okay. Yeah. Okay. So he's out working for an outfit out in what is that? That's like central Montana, isn't it? Like near Helena and all Southwest, that. Southwest Montana. Oh, okay. All right. So it's close to, but it's not far from Bozeman. It's a, oh, I think it's an hour and a half from Bozeman. So this time of year, I guess, um, he gets to send you pictures of, uh, nice big, uh, brown trout and beautiful scenery, and uh you know all that kind of stuff for the rest of the year and then you have something on him uh for the next month because i'm sure while he's out there he's missing nymphing all day long i'm sure he's missing the terrestrial smallmouth game exactly what he's doing yeah that's right yep so uh so tell us a little bit about um about you know you guys are from that area and then tell us a little bit about uh how you got into fly fishing uh, and then kind of, you know, how the progression of both your career as a guide and, and you as a fly fisherman. Tell us a little bit about it. Well, I, like you mentioned, I'm the third generation in our fly fishing family, and all of us have lived near Sugar Creek through several generations. Dad taught me to cast a fly rod when I was 10. That was sort of the rule. You had to be 10. Um, and 
Well, I caught fish with a fly rod. We spinned fish. We did all sorts of stuff. Heck, I fished with bait. I did it all. Okay. And then at some point in my early 20s, I decided if I want to be really good at fly fishing, I had to drop everything else. And so that's what I did. But by the time I was, oh, well, a little bit between the fly shop and that, I started to build fly rods for people in my early mid-20s. And I sort of progressed into me having the harebrained idea of opening up a fly shop in Lafayette, Indiana, which I did in 1996. And... At that point, that started my guide career. Very un, unbeknownst to me, I would become a guide. In fact, <laughs> I didn't want to be a guide. And the guys who worked for me in that store, I told them, if anybody asks for a trip, I don't want to do it. I won't do it. I'm not going to be a guide. I, I'm a fly shop guy, and I want to go fishing on my own. I just did not want to take people fishing. And a guy named Dave McCarty, who was the editor for Midwest Fly Fishing Magazine, the Indiana uh, editor, uh, which was a great publication. Tom Helgeson was just a fantastic guy. I really, I really miss Tom. That was a great magazine. Uh, asked David asked if he could write an article about my childhood growing up on Sugar Creek and the Tippecanoe River. I said, oh, sure. I was 27 years old. I was excited about it. Great. So we do an article, and actually he came and fished with me. Believe it or not, we fished the tip in Shirt Creek all in one day. Oh, wow. um, And <laughs> I know you're probably thinking, how in the world did Why? you do that? <laughs> Why did you um, do that? <laughs> I know. I know. Uh, well, the tippy was blown out, so I rode out and took him to Shirt Creek and we caught a bunch of fish. Uh, so that's gotcha. kind of how it went. Okay. But uh, he wrote the article, and... I had no idea what would happen. And people started to come in the store and say, hey, I want to book a trip. I'm like, I'm not a guy. And I tell the other guys, tell them I'm not a guy. And I'd give them flies at a map and say, you know, go, go catch fish. There was this one guy who just was belligerent and would not take a no for an answer. And I said, look, I'm not a guy. I don't even know what to do. He said, well, you know, a creek, right? I said, yeah. You grew up on it, yeah. Well, you can take me fishing. Oh, okay. I charged him like a hundred bucks and I took him on a forced march and, uh, <laughs> he caught fish. He paid me at the end of the day and I thought, huh, that wasn't so bad. I think I can, I think I can do that. So the first couple of years, we didn't even have boats. We just did, you know, weight trips. Wow. And so that's kind of how that, that all started. And then of course it, the Lafayette store turned into two stores, one in Zionsville and so on and so forth. But um, so that's sort of the beginning of it. It progressed from there. Wow. So w when you first started off, was it just you or did you have a uh, couple couple bums, you know, sitting around in the fly shop or what? Yeah, I did. I had a couple of guys that I still, um, I still have some contact with. Grant Snyder was one of the first people who worked for me in the store, him and a guy named Jay Armstrong. Jay Armstrong actually worked for me longer than anybody. Uh, Grant is a English professor at Fair State now. So huh. I had all these Purdue people who would come in, so it was pretty easy to hire uh, professional students. <laughs> right, sure. <laughs> to work in the fly shop. That wasn't too hard. Yeah. And then I, and then there was me as well. So Good deal. Yeah. So, and then, uh, of course, you know, the rest is, as they say, uh, history. So you, uh, and that was in the, what, not, you said 96 is when you started off and you was 96 and that was my first year guiding as well. It was September of 96. Wow. So, and then I know you took a, what, like a year or something like that off and then, but other than that, you've been at it that whole time, right? Well, no, that's kind of, no, that's, so it's. I did take a period of time off, but it was longer than a year. Oh, it was. Okay. So the first 16 years, first 16 years of the business, um, well, in 2006, I opened a second store in Zionsville. Okay. And so after then another six years, I guess, for the first 16 years I guided, and then the business was growing tremendously, and I needed to manage that and didn't believe it was fair to people for me to continue to guide. So I quit guiding, uh, and then, you know, built the business even further. Wow. I didn't come back to guiding until I'd walked away from the fly fishing business. I was done. I owned with partners, a couple of lodges in Southern Chile. I was kind of done with everything. 
Mm. And uh, for about 10 months, sort of wandered in the wilderness and told my wife two years ago, I said, yeah, I think I'm just going to go back and guide. And she said, I think you're nuts. That's crazy. <laughs> I said, no, I, I really miss the water. I want to be back on the water. And I got to tell you, the, the last two years have been the best guide years of my life. I mean, I'm just, I'm just having a ball. Well, you seem just to be busy. Me. I mean, and I, you, you seem to be, you have a yeah. lot of, a lot of clients. I mean, you're, you're posting pictures almost every day of uh, people that you're taking out. So that's, I mean, to be here and have clients to go out guide and guide smallmouth bass. I mean, that's a pretty, that's a pretty big accomplishment in and of itself because I mean, we're not a destination fishery really. So. Well, uh, actually I have this year alone, I have people from, uh, and these are mostly all multi-day trips is I have people from uh, Tennessee, Kentucky, Nebraska, Iowa, wow. Michigan, Ohio, and Illinois. Okay. So, now, and all of those people have taken, usually take multiple days. So well, we, yeah. we, we kind of are a destination. Well, I mean, thanks to, uh, you know, you keep putting up, you keep putting up uh, good pictures. We're going to become one anyway. So uh, do you mostly guide then on uh, between Sugar Creek and Tippecanoe? Those are the kind of the two main... Uh, yeah, those are the only those are the only two rivers I guide. Uh, I, okay. This is my thirty sixth year of rowing the Tippecanoe River. Right. I started when I was fifteen with my dad, and, and then uh, Shirt Creek my whole life. I don't even remember the first time I fished Shirt Creek, quite honestly. Jeez. Uh, and then I know that you got you have a like a hard body drift boat that you guide out of, and then now I saw that you just bought the same boat that I have. So you have a you have a Hooligan uh, XL, right? That you're guiding out of. Yeah, I you know it's it's interesting. I uh, I had rafts in the past. I had two other rafts that I guided, and I always thought those would be the best thing to have for low water. But right. they were so big, so heavy. I mean, they both weighed three hundred fifty or four hundred pounds. Right. So when I saw that stealth craft, I thought, man, that is perfect for terrestrial season. I've got to have one. I can't. Right. I can't do another season <laughs> without yeah. it. So yeah, I'm. I'm Probably like you, and I mean, speak for you, but that boat is fantastic. I mean, it, it it truly is. I mean, I don't know what the fly craft is like. You know, I've never fished out of the Smith fly or the fly craft, you know, those other smaller rafts. But, I mean, for what for the water that we have and for this time of year, I mean, there really isn't a better – I don't think there's there's there can be much, you know, much better setup. I mean, it's – you can float in two inches of water – you know, you can maneuver it around. It's light enough that you can actually pick it up and throw it in the water somewhere. You know, it's a really, uh, and you're going to, and it's going to give you the capability to float, you know, all year round on our water. Um, so yeah, probably a good move. Have you found any difficulty, uh, guiding out of that though? Like I know that, um, you know, I'm, I'm a younger guy, you know, I'm 33, but I, I could see, you know, the older guys may be having some difficulty kind of, you know, in that boat. It's not as stable. It's not as comfortable. Any issues with that so far? I had two, I had a 65-year-old guy and an almost 80-year-old guy in it the other day, and it was wonderful. Really? Wow. Okay. Well, that's... Yeah, I had, no, I had no trouble. Very good. Okay. Well, um, so let's let's get into the, let's get into the fishing uh, aspect of it. I, I mean... Don't get me wrong, your your life is very interesting, but I think that, uh, you know, the big thing here, the, the reason why I wanted to have you on is I think that um, maybe you weren't the first guy to be doing this, but you were definitely kind of at the leading edge of fishing terrestrials for smallmouth. Um, so how did you, how did you get that idea and when did you first start? Uh, and, and, and also, so three things. Describe for us what a terrestrial is. Tell us when you first got the idea to do it, and uh, and then we'll go from there. Well, a terrestrial is uh, a bug that lives on the earth. So terra, which is the Latin word for earth, so terra, uh, is terrestrial, is a bug um, that would live uh, on the earth and fall into the water. So it doesn't start its life um, in the water. You know, a lot of people call dragonflies terrestrial. They're not. It's an aquatic insect. 
Mm-hmm. But this would, uh, the category of this would be beetles and hoppers, essentially, and crickets and katydids, and I've uh, got all sorts of different <laughs> colors of flies that are supposed to imitate those things. But essentially, it's beetles and hoppers. Right. Um, cicadas. How this all, you know, all that, all that ahead. kind of uh, cicadas, hoppers, beetles. Yeah. Uh, you know, yeah. all that, all those little you know, creatures that dwell up in the trees and on the, you know, in the tall grass and all that kind of stuff, right? Right. Yep. How it started was interesting. I had mentioned that the first couple of years we didn't have rafts, so, or boats. Um, and then in 99, I got a raft. And first off, that changed everything because, heck, I mean, there weren't even really that many smallmouth guides, fly fishing guides in the whole Midwest at that point. So I had nobody that really asked and say, what are you doing with a boat? Right, <laughs> a couple guys sure. maybe using canoes, but I mean, I was the only one in Indiana and there was, I mean, a couple in Wisconsin, one in Minnesota, I think, and maybe some trout guys that were doing smallmouth trips occasionally in Michigan. There just really weren't that many guides. Right. And when I got that boat, uh, fished through the beginning of the season, it was fantastic. Changed the fishing because now I can cover five miles instead of a mile and a half or two. Well, we got in late in the season, and August was always a very frustrating time to fish. Low water, spooky fish. It was just tough to wade to those fish. Right. And uh, I remember it was August 7th, 1999. And we'd caught some fish on streamers and poppers at the beginning of the day. But as the day progressed, I kept running over fish. And you have to remember, we never floated. I never got to see this happen. <laughs> and so all day long, I was with a guy named Wayne LeMade. I still guide him to this day. And we're floating down the river, and I'm on sand in the middle of the sun, and I'm running over these big fish. I was so incredibly frustrated. I thought, why won't that fish eat a streamer? Why won't eat a crowd at it? It wouldn't eat, they wouldn't eat, even if I saw them ahead of time, they wouldn't eat anything. And so it was about three o'clock in the afternoon. I get below a bridge. I anchor because Wayne's leader's messed up and I'm, I'm fixing it. And I look down on the sand next to me and there's two smallmouth sitting like trout on the bottom of the sand in pretty shallow water. And one was probably 17, 18 inches of nice fish, and one was about 14 inches. And I looked up ahead, the fish started to tilt up, the big fish, tilted up slightly, and I looked ahead, and I saw a black dot on the water. That fish rose up and sucked it in like a trout and went right back down the sand. My life was altered forever. <laughs> I, I could not believe I had just seen a trout do exactly what every or a smallmouth do exactly what every smallmouth guy I ever talked to ever said. They don't act like trout. Well, I don't think they act like trout. I think they borrow this behavior from trout not alone. It's what they are. The river fish looking for a particular forage, and that forage, they set themselves up to eat that forage. Well, I, I rummaged around in my box, and I found a uh, Skip Morse foam predator. I have no idea what was in my box. I put it on. We did not caught a fish in three hours. I put it on. Wayne cast a fly next to a log. Fish came up and he ate it. And about four other fish was with that fish trying to take the fly from him. And I thought, oh, my goodness, what, <laughs> what just happened? We went down the next bank and just crushed them. And I was catching fish, you know, 16, 17, 18-inch fish, several of them. And their gullets were just full of Japanese beetles. Mm. I just was, I was dumbfounded. Wow. And so I took that information and the next trip pulled around with it a little more. And then, you know, the rest isn't completely history because a lot of development had to happen. And we had to identify, identified three or four different behaviors with these fish and the fly development, everything from the bass beetle to all the hoppers and everything that we developed over those years happened over a long period of time. I mean, you only get four to eight weeks or eight to 10 weeks to kind of do this. So you have to sort of develop those things in a pretty short period of time. So it took years. Sure. Um, 
especially so starting from there, scratch. There's a lot of technical you know, information I've developed about these fish. I mean, that's the other thing is you're starting from scratch before social media. You know, now, you know, I have guys reaching out to me all the time. You know, hey, what do you think about this? Or what do you think about that? Or, you know, you see a, a picture of a guy that's got a terrestrial, you know, you know, that he's he's tying up or something like that. I mean, you're starting from essentially nothing. I mean, didn't even know yeah, there was no uncharted, unrecorded no. behavior that you're trying to develop a pattern from scratch to cater to. I mean, and you don't see it very often. You see it for a short window of time. So, yeah, I mean, pretty fascinating well, stuff. Well, we, we even went and tried trout terrestrials. Oh, right. And we caught fish, but the problem was the hooks were all wrong. Right, sure. So... Yeah, try try was, driving a, a, a size, you know, uh, ten, you know, little little thin trout hook through a, you know, alpha female smallmouth jaw. I mean, that's a, you know, that's a tall order. I mean, that's a that's a heavy, thick mandible. So, um, right. yeah, you gotta you gotta have that wide gap. You gotta have that hook that's got some some uh, backbone to it for sure. So. Um, so what kind of, um, so what kind of patterns do you, uh, are you using nowadays? I mean, um, are they, are they things that we could buy people that could buy, or do you have your own things that you're using or what, what are we looking at? I've got eight or nine different patterns and different colors. But the truth is the, the, I mean, I use, I still use the bass needle to this day. It varies a little bit depending on, I mean, there's new materials that are coming out. That's the other thing. Oh, sure. <laughs> there weren't yeah. many materials then. Yeah. So you, you had black foam and you had brown foam. And if you wanted it to be, have anything done to it, you had to do it yourself. I mean, I remember my Coal Creek Hopper, I had to take this, you know, a uh, flash wing and glue it to the back of, foam to try to make it work I and mean, it just it was there just wasn't much but um i digress a little bit the, no the no beetle, this is great this is great beetle, the, uh, the hopper the different hopper patterns i'll be honest with you chris i'm not good at naming flies I, but i have about <laughs> 10 different patterns okay and maybe i'll post them on instagram or something so people can, and there are a few posted on instagram sure but it's it's not so much the, the patterns are important mm-hmm. the elements to the flies are important patterns okay so legs need to be a little longer and they probably need to be round rubber legs as opposed to silicone legs although i have a couple i use silicone legs all right sorry about that chad so you were saying that the elements to the fly is just as important as the pattern itself so can you kind of expand on that a little bit for us yeah so the elements are going to be foam rubber legs they could have some natural materials added for wings, things like that. So you could potentially use um, elk hair, which I still to this day use elk hair in a couple of those patterns. Okay. Um, but the elements are important. So, for example, legs. I'm really not a fan of silicone legs for this fishing. They don't, they're not terribly durable. So I mainly use round rubber legs that are much more durable, making the legs a little longer than you normally would um, on a trout pattern is, is important. A fly needs to do something while it's not doing anything. Um, and so those legs help with that concern. Foam, okay. as I already mentioned, but the hooks, that's that's the key. What kind of... My uh, primary hook... Oh, God. That's what I was going to ask. My primary hook day in, day out is a TMC 8089 size 12. Hmm. It's the smallest one they have. They, it's, it, they stopped making it for a while. They make it again. I'll use the 10 occasionally, but that TMC 8089 size 12 is awesome. Um, I used to use Gamakatsu's uh, BS10, whatever that hook is, their bass hook. Yeah. In those smaller sizes, I'm not crazy about that hook. Um, I, it it uh, tends to not hook those fish very well. It's a heavier gauge hook. Right. That that. That 8089 is a little more lighter wire, kind of traditional stinger hook, and it works great. And the other hook is the TMC 200, and I use that uh, for all my hopper patterns, the bigger one, like the size 4. So those elements to the fly I think are really important. You can just play with color. It doesn't have to be some specific. Now, because I'm a fly tire, I do all sorts of things to them, you know, make them look, you know, uh, 
uh, more attractive maybe to people who would look at them as opposed to a fish. But um, variation in color is important too. So you've got black, black and purple, black and red. Red's really good with black. Um, you know, you've got your tans and and even olives. Uh, and so the kind of you know blue is another good one. And I'm I'm not so sure they don't eat it thinking it's a damselfly, but I don't right. care. Yeah. Uh, so those are that's kind of the variations of materials and and uh, for the patterns. Now, is there like with regard to color? Because you know, typically, I would say color is one of the least important aspects of, at least in my opinion, it's one of the one of the least important aspects of, um, you know, of, of the lure that you're trying to attract fish to eat. But in this particular instance, we're fishing terrestrials in extremely clear low water and it's kind of an you know a lot of times you're you're putting a cast down on a fish that may be in only eight inches of water six inches of water you know something like that i mean almost fins sticking out of the water you know i mean so uh is there a specific type of you know weather condition like bluebird skies you want to be fishing blue or you know overcast you want to be fishing a dark more muted color any anything like that, or is it just kind of whatever the fish seem to be keying in on? Well, your conditions aren't going to vary much during this time. August and September, your conditions are going to be day in day out, very consistent. Right. In fact, that's what makes terrestrial fishing so good during that time is the fish get very happy, very comfortable. So you're you have very few overcast days. Really, what what coloration where it really comes into play is that. The first terrestrial they really eat well is Japanese beetles. Mm-hmm. So black during that initial time when those fish finally really change over and are truly set up in the river properly to eat bugs, the beetle is the first fly. Okay. So I use black a lot in those first two or three weeks. Well, you start to get more dull hoppers, and they become more important. They, they start to eat the hoppers. So it's really a transition from the species of bug I'm fishing as opposed to, you know, bright sky, light fly. Although there's, there's something to be said for that. I mean, there's days that have been bright. I've used my tan hopper pattern and they crush it. So maybe there's something to that, but I tend to think through that process um, more systematically right. where these are the bugs that are available during that period of time. That's what I'm going to concentrate on. So for the first few weeks, because I would say we're we're probably we're beyond the first couple of weeks. I would say we're kind, of, but we're we're in the first. I would say we're probably in the first three weeks of terrestrial fishing. Is that is that a fair statement right now as we record this? I don't I don't think it's really started yet. Really? So there's a difference. There's a difference between terrestrial fishing and fishing terrestrials and fish eating them. <laughs> so okay. you can well, take you yeah, can take a terrestrial true. you can take a terrestrial in uh in late April when fish are on bed and if the water's really low and you can't throw poppers at them you can throw with the you know probably shouldn't tell anybody that but <laughs> they'll eat them you can have low water in June and they'll eat beetles. Will traditionally be to eat beetles. You're, you're you're fishing them in different places. When terrestrial fishing really starts, those fish have sort of abandoned everything else, and they have now moved to different places in the river. They're hanging under foam, right? And grazing in a big dead hole. So, while yes, certainly you could be catching fish on terrestrials right now, it's. It's not going to be the terrestrial, the, the the traditional terrestrial that sort of move uh, from um, you know eating something that is on the surface, uh, or you might even fish a popper. <laughs> Let the popper make too much noise. You just fish a terrestrial instead, and yeah. they could very well be eating it, thinking it's a dragonfly too. I mean, I I fish dragonflies the last two weeks of July. There's sort of a a period of time that transition between. The baitfish binge and terrestrials that dragon flies are incredibly important. Oh yeah, well, well I don't, I don't poo poo what you said. I think you're right. I mean, we're in the low water season; you can use them. But in terms of where those fish are actually going to set up traditionally and start acting differently, 
is still quite not there. Okay. Yeah. So when when do you? I mean, when would you anticipate that happening? Is that something that you're expecting to see like any day? Kind of that shift or? First, it's really rare. It's really, really rare to see that happen in July. It's almost always the first week of August, and it was last year too. So I've already been to all those places and checked them out, hoping to see those fish doing it. And I didn't see fish in the foam. I mean, when they're really on the terrestrials, it is incredible where you find those fish. Mm-hmm. I mean, you can really, truly sight fish them. They are, they are sitting on sand in the middle of the summer. And this are in, in seam lines. They are in uh, in tributary mouths, hanging up in the water column underneath the foam, actively sipping beetles as they come to them, just like trout. Right. So I haven't seen any of that behavior yet, but I would guess that's going to happen first week of August, which it usually does. It could happen earlier, and maybe you've seen it and I haven't. So I don't want to, again, don't assume just because I haven't seen it that it's not happening. It's just what I know traditionally kind of how I follow it. Well, I mean, I, you know, uh, I'm learning as, as everybody else, I'm sure that's listening is learning. I mean, I've, I've seen, I I got on a really good terrestrial bite <laughs> over the weekend, but I'm not sure that I'm refined enough to understand the difference between a fish that's just eating a terrestrial as opposed to one that is, you know, uh, in that pattern for the rest of the, you know, for the rest of the you know, next couple months. And, uh, you know, I'm not sure that I have that, that level of knowledge to kind of understand the difference. So, uh, well, so it may sound like I'm splitting hairs. No, no, n- not at all. And, when you go out and actually look for these fish that are doing it, right. They really act differently than they do right now. Very differently. Right. Um, so and you, the, and you, the things that you're looking for, like when they make that shift, because you kind of, I think our audio may have broken up a little bit, but you said they're going to be, uh, you know, in that real shallow, in the, in the sand, hanging up in the water column, underneath the foam, and consistently eating on top as beetles go floating down, you know, um, down the river. Is that is that about, about right, or what else are we looking for? Yeah, yeah. Low water barriers become very important, too. You see, if these big, wide, slow, descending riffles mm-hmm. that filter an incredible number of Japanese beetles into um, really just a trickle at the end, but that's nice and wide, and maybe you've got a couple of feet below it. And those fish will stay below that and just sit beetles all day long. So you've got that. You've got, but really there are three, three or four types of fish. There's the sedentary fish that's sitting on sand, um, and, and that's typically in a tail out. There is the structure fish that is using ledges to sort of hide. And so those lonely flat rocks in the middle of the river are super important. Let me say this about that fish. So many times people cast a terrestrial past where they think the fish is and work the fly to it. That is a, you are probably spooking the fish. You, you you need to drop the fly right on the head of where you think a fish is. They want the plop. Mm-hmm. So if, you, if you're looking at a ledge on a flat rock, you need to put the fly on the ledge. They're looking for those bugs to hit the surface, and that's what they want. So there's a, that fish, and then there is the grazer. And that's the weird fish. That's the frustrating fish. That's the fish that gets in, you know, what people refer to as frog water <laughs> right. that I love. And those fish will just maybe two of them together will cruise and just look for things to eat, look for beetles to eat. And those fish can be very frustrating. You can throw a fly out and wait for a long period of time and hope they find it. (laughs) But even targeting those fish is difficult. So I have caught some of those fish, but they're hard to catch. So that's kind of the behavior of the fish that I I see when I'm terrestrial fishing, where they're going to be. Okay. Uh, And you said... You know, the first pattern that they start looking for, the Japanese beetles now, do you use like a like a fat Albert or something like that kind of in those first couple sure. weeks of August? Okay. Yeah, that can be really effective. In fact, I have sort of a modified fat Albert pattern that I use I really like. Um, I modify, it's really modified by one of the guys that used to work for me in Chile. Um, and uh, 
Rodrigo used to tie some just beautiful uh, big terrestrials. Of course, if anybody knows anything about Southern Chile, it's just terrestrial heaven. And I modified that pattern to fit on the, the numbered size 128089. So, yeah, fat Alberts are incredibly effective during that beetle time. And whenever, like in the first couple weeks, I mean, so I guess let's let's kind of back up a little bit. What kind of uh, – are you typically using like a six-weight, five-weight? Um, Great question. Okay. I don't, I don't ever, I don't let anybody use a six weight. Okay. So it is, it is, it's a five weight or, or less. And even fours make me a little nervous, to be honest with you. I, if you've got a guy who can really stick a fish good and fight a fish, but four weight, that's tough. That five weight is just perfect for that fishing. Okay. Um, you still need a rod, you need to move a fish. And I don't use light leaders when I do this. I use very long leaders. I just don't use light leaders. I'm the, um, I'm the so same way. I use really like I use like 15 foot, 16 foot maybe, or maybe well yeah. between between 14 and 16 foot I would say easily, and I use but I still use the same like tw- at least 12 pounds like minimum 12 pounds exactly. Okay, you got That's it. The You're same right way. on. Okay. All right, so then, uh, so five weight rod, uh, you know, and what what length of leaders do you kind of uh, try and use? I'm 12 to 15, and if I'm fishing, it's a 15 with a lot of clients. It's difficult to cast. You know, I'm sure you're a really good caster, so so (laughs) casting 14 to 16. Wow! As you progress in your casting, you must you must think there's uh, a you must think there's a bar for entry to start your own podcast. (laughs) I can assure you, there's not. So, uh, no, I mean I can cast, but yeah, I mean that's that's another thing. I mean, being a good caster. Uh, there's never a more important time in smallmouth fishing to be a good caster than terrestrial season. I think that's probably you. You are, you are exactly right. <laughs> yeah. You are 100 percent right. It it makes all the difference in the world to be accurate. And while I have some clients that I've got one guy's 90 years old and he just he got a really big big fish last year on a terrestrial and he just he just fell in love with doing it. But he can cast 30 feet. He's 90 years old. So I have to get in the boat, get him in position for it to work. But if you're going out most of the time and you can cast 30 feet, you can catch fish, but it's going to be difficult. Yeah, you need to work on getting that cast out to 50 feet. Sure. You know, 40, 50 feet at least to be successful with it. I I think you make a really good point, Chris, that casting matters. It's it's probably one of the – I mean, not that you – you know, not that casting doesn't matter in other times of the year, but definitely the fish are a little spookier, you know, and, uh, you know, they're as I think maybe you might have even said this, uh, smallmouth bass aren't particularly leader shy, but they're definitely fly line shy. So if you go plopping your yeah, fly line around, exactly. you know, you're gonna, you're gonna have a rough day. But if you can, if you can put your cast within the, you know, in an eight foot spot, you know, when, with the 16 foot leader, you'll probably be all right. Now, what type of cast do you like? I mean, do you, cause you, I like to kind of slap them on the water. I mean, I like, I like that terrestrial yeah. to it's, it's dissimilar to trout in that. I think that a trout probably doesn't really prefer that big slap. You know, uh, I tend to think that. Oh man, they do in Chile. Okay. Well, if you're not slapping <laughs> it on the water, man. They're not seeing it. Right. So yeah, it's Yeah. But definitely for smallmouth, I think that they like a they like the terrestrial itself to kind of slap on the water. Um, is that is that your experience as well? Yeah, and that's why that's primary. There's two reasons I use heavy leaders, and and one is so I can roll the flyover so it can aggressively hit the surface. Because as your leader gets longer, there's less power. It it, it dissipates. Sure. Um, to the fly, which is by design. That's the reason you have a tapered leader. So I want a heavier tippet so that fly plops on the water because the plop is by far the most important thing. And I rarely move my fly much. I'd rather pick it up and plop it down again, frankly. Um, so yeah, that's exactly right. Yeah. And when you're, when you're fishing, say out of a boat and you're, 
you're approaching a spot and of course it's going to vary depending on what type of structure you're fishing and the flow and that type of thing but do you find generally it's more effective to fish like kind of across current and downstream a good ways is that is that kind of the direction you like to have your clients fish you know, maybe you should have written the article I just wrote instead of, written <laughs> instead of me. Okay. <laughs> well, I'm just, uh, I'm trying to lead the conversation a little bit, I guess. But, nah, but is that, is that right? It. Is yeah, that right? exactly yeah. right. Okay. Now. Yeah, you, you're, you're right. So you, you've got to make sure that that, if you can do what's called a reach bend. Yeah. If you can, if you can perfect that reach bend, that makes a big difference. Um but yeah, casting that 45 degrees down from the boat um, and looking for a fish to plop the, the fly on is really important because one, you want the, the fly to get there before the boat does. Yes. You know, boats, even though we're using rafts and we're really careful, we're still going to spook fish. Exactly. Um, but if you wade to those fish downstream, you can forget it. They're, yeah. They are not going to eat. Yeah, because you're kick. So that, so that, that kind of, uh, that's kind of a basic thing. I think that we might take for granted a little bit, but you know, as you're wading downstream and in, in really clear water, you're kicking up a tremendous amount of silt, you know, gravel, whatever. And, and that's sending a silt line down the river. And when, when a 15 year old smallmouth bass or a 10 year old smallmouth bass sees a silt line coming down, uh, good luck because I mean, they're just not going to eat. Uh, and number two, yeah, particularly in low water, yeah, you know? particularly in low water. And then the other thing, you know, I think one of the reasons why you want to cast downstream at a 45 is I think it helps the fly swing a little bit more naturally and drift a little bit more naturally down the river with, when you fish in that 45 degree downstream angle. And also, uh, there's, you know, there, there are more fish in the river than smallmouth. You know, there are suckers, carp whatever and when the the when the water's low like that the fish kind of concentrate in those deeper pockets of water that are oxygenated and and have uh food sources nearby so as you're floating down if you're fishing directly parallel or on directly perpendicular to your boat you know straight towards the bank a lot of times you've spooked every fish in the river you know, and you're fishing in an area where the smallmouth are already alerted to the presence of an apex predator yourself. So, you know, fishing downstream kind of gives you an opportunity to fish in an area that you haven't already spooked all the, you know, the rough fish, I guess. Is that, is that, is that kind of the methodology, Chad? No. Oh, absolutely. Okay. Yeah. Like yeah. I said, to, to, for the fly to get there before you do is pretty critical. And right. that, that angle matters too. You make a really good point. Those, those fish, when you, when you're casting 90 to the bank, those fish that have their face upstream can see you. Right. You know, they can see you. Well, when you're casting the fly down to them and it's a fairly long cast they don't see you. Right. Um, so conversely, if you're waiting, you got to go upstream so that you get the same effect. Yeah, right, exactly. So, yeah, if you're wading in this low, super clear water because you don't have a boat, you know, uh, and you want to, and you still want to try the terrestrial thing, I mean, you can get away with weight. I mean, I've, you know, there are times where I cheat and wade downstream because there's a spot that I want to fish or whatever, but, you know, you just got to be extra stealthy, extra ninja, you know, but wading upstream uh you know is the way to go for sure just because you know you're going to keep dirt out of the smallmouth's face you're going to have fresh water to fish instead of you know walking through a bunch of rough fish to get to the smallmouth that you want to catch so um so anyway so the first few weeks you know you're looking at more of a beetle pattern um you know and then around mid-august you say you kind of tran transition over to like more of a hopper pattern is that right chad I'll still use the beetle, but the okay. hopper kind of comes into play. There's days where they just eat that hopper really well, and they won't eat the beetle as well. Okay. So, you know, when I'm, when I'm fishing day after day after day after day, they get pretty pretty focused on something. Um, but then you'll have that day where for some odd reason, maybe it is the sunlight, whatever, they want that lighter colored fly and it's the hopper. But I tend to think um, that's just because there's a lot more hoppers than there are. You know, I mean, September is hopper. Season. I mean, man, sure. there's so many hoppers, it's ridiculous.
All right. So we got you. We got you back, Chad. Starting to worry about you there for a second. Yeah, I I think I live yep. out. I kind of live out in the middle of nowhere, so my internet connection from time to time is uh, pretty rough. But um, so anyway, so you said. Now, with with the hoppers that you're looking at, do you do you like the big fancy, you know, the flashy colors on those, or what do you, uh, or do you kind of stay more of like a an earth tone, natural type color? Oh, earth tones for sure. I but I do really like sparkle foam. I like foam that's going to reflect a little light and look. Um, you know, because if you look at those bugs, they they don't they're not always just a solid color. They've got, there's a modeled aspect to those bugs. So I, I do, I, I have both. I mean, my, um, my original, I mean, man, uh, now I guess almost uh, 17, 18 years ago, the first line of terrestrials was the bass beetle and the, the smallmouth terrestrial line. And those were all just basic foam patterns. And I still use those. Um, but I like to mix in a little sparkle foam from time to time. Okay. So do you like the, you ever, uh, mess around with like pink or, um, anything like that? Or you, uh, you kind of, yeah, I do. I have pink patterns and I've used them a few times. Um, purple. Oh, nice. (laughs) Okay. Where they eat purple like crazy. I have no idea why, but they do. They love purple some days. Hmm. So, like in terrestrial season, do you kind of start off the day, you know, uh, you know, early early morning, you know, right as the sun's coming up? Do you kind of fish like a more aggressive pattern, like earlier in the day, like maybe maybe even a popper, you know? And then when the visibility comes and the light and the sun's above the trees, you kind of switch over to that more subtle terrestrial pattern, or do you kind of uh, stick to terrestrials right from the right, right from the get? When I start fishing terrestrials in August, I won't fish a single other way until mid-October. I won't change. I won't fish a streamer. I won't fish a popper. We only fish terrestrials. For 10 weeks last year, the only fly, the only fish that was caught in Shirt Creek in those 10 weeks was on a a beetle or a hopper. (laughs) So, no, I don't. And I don't get on the water early. There's just not much use in doing that. So... Um, I typically, you know, I'm pushing off the, the put in at eight thirty ish. Yeah, and getting done five thirty ish. So that's so crazy um, to think about, like, because most people, and and you know, I've been guilty of this as well. You know, uh, in terrestrial season, thinking, oh man, got to get out there early. You know, got to get out there. You know, got to get that morning bite, but. Honestly, it's it's a strange phenomenon, but I feel like when the sun is highest, that's when that's when the best fishing is. I mean, for with terrestrial. Well, you're like, exactly you're a hundred you're a hundred percent right. There's yeah. just no reason to get up and go, you know, break a dawn kind of thing. It's really, in fact, you know, you'll you may have even a slow morning till eleven or twelve o'clock, and boy, when it happens, it, right. it won't end until the sun gets lower. Yeah, it's on. Yeah, I mean, like for instance, which which you know. uh I may have learned that <laughs> that it's not terrestrial season yet, but the last weekend I, you know, it was just, uh, you know, we, we kind of, we had them on early in the morning on poppers and then we got them on like a streamer pattern, like mid morning. And then when the sun was, when the sun was high, you could just kind of, I could just kind of tell like, okay, the, you know, a subtle top mm-hmm. water pattern right now is, you know, is going to be the ticket. So Um, you know, that's, that's kind of a counterintuitive, uh, type thing because, you know, fishing is kind of, if you're a lake guy, you know, for instance, or even if you're a river guy on, and you fish like specific rivers here in Indiana, you probably think middle of the day is about the worst time to be out on the water, but that's just really not the case, um, you know, in this terrestrial game. So, um, yeah, interesting stuff. Now, one one question too before we move on to kind of the later season patterns. Do you um do you try this on like Tippy or any of the other rivers or is this kind of a Sugar Creek thing? No, I've I've done it on the Tippecanoe River. Have you? Um and I've been successful doing it. But I really have to pick my places to do it. Okay. Um, you know, 
current with seam breaks, things like that with foam that can ha- that can work really well. Um, and if you've got some shallow flats with uh, with weed beds, uh-huh. that can that can work really well too. Okay. Um, but it's not primarily what I'm going to do on a typical river. Here's the thing about terrestrial fishing is it requires, a, even though you can catch a lot of fish doing it, it really requires patience. Right. And so you've got to, you've got to work methodically through a river and do your due diligence, so to speak. And that is very difficult to do in a big river. You've got so yeah. much water to cover. Right. And those fish more than likely in a big river have a much wider variety of things to eat so they may be all the way through september on the tippy they may be eating crawdads mm-hmm. and right. that's happened some seasons um they've been eating them lately uh so i i'm real picky when i do it on the tippy and i have to have the right fisherman it goes oh yeah i want to do it um i've got some really nice fish on big hoppers Be- it's funny beetles tend to not work very well on that river I'm, I'm not sure why. Maybe because it is a big river. Hopper patterns work work pretty well in certain areas on on big rivers. Yeah, I mean it is a little intimidating too to cast terrestrials in such an open, big, you know, waterway. Yep. Um, it's a little bit more of a yeah. It's it's like a little bit more of an, an intimate thing. I think you know you're a little bit closer. You kind of have a a pretty good idea where the fish are located. You know when you're doing it. Um, you know, on the tippy, it's just, or, or, or any big river, really. I mean, uh, they could be anywhere, you know? I mean, it's a lot, there's a lot of water cover. So uh, I kind of get that. I think that. rivers that are controlled by dams are an issue for terrestrial fishing. And the reason I okay. say that's because yeah. they, they tend to get very low late in the year and they, those dams tend to hold water back. Right. And so consequently, the structure and thing that the fish might be on, um, they can't even get to. And that's the case on the tippy. A lot of those fish, if there was just a few more inches of water, might be up in those areas, but they're just they're out in the middle of the river, primarily eating other things. Yeah. Well, um, and then, so moving through August, uh, what kind of patterns are you looking at in, like, September through October? I mean, do you kind of throw in some, like, a Chernobyl ant-type situation, or do you kind of you kind of stay on the hopper, on the hopper game? No, it's beetles, and I'll you still use beetles throughout August and September too. It depends on um, kind of let the river speak to me, so to speak, what's happening. Right. Uh, but but yeah, September's important for hoppers, certainly. Yeah. Right. Uh, but sometimes I throw them and they don't eat them, and I put a beetle on and they eat it. So it's not like I know exactly what's going to happen day to day. But that's why I keep my focus pretty narrow. I'm going to fish terrestrials. And I'm going to figure out which one works in a particular water type and kind of stick to that. And I really want, like I said, until mid-October, I'm that's all I'm going to do. Now, I have had years, we've had very mild Octobers, and I have caught fish on beetles in 1st of November before. Wow. So it, it is rare, but it, I have caught many nice fish. I mean, not at once, but over the years. On beetles very late here, boy, you talk about have to be patient, but they will come up and eat it. Yeah, I mean, I think when you said patience, um, you know, it. <laughs> I fish a lot with my brother, and, uh, you know, he's he's a great fisherman, great, great fly caster. I mean, uh, nobody better to be in the boat with, great attitude, you know, all that kind of stuff. If he's got one flaw, it's that he wants to move. You know, he wants a moving, he wants a moving fly. He wants a, he wants that strip. He wants that pop. You know, he wants something. Uh, he does, you know, casting a fly out there and letting it dead drift for, you know, 15 to 20 seconds is just, you know, oh, you uh, it's like that. nails you on a chalk. Yeah, right. I mean, but it's just nails on a chalkboard to him. You know, I mean, he just can't, you could just see him twitching his legs trying to move something, you know, um, so I think that that, you know, if there's one thing that people take, if there, if there are two things that people take from this, uh, from this episode with you, I think number one should be, um, kind of the, the setup that you use, you know, that long leader, uh, you know, the, the type of flies that you use. And number two is patience, you know, 
letting that fly just sort of hang in the strike zone for 15 to 20 seconds. And, uh, you know, that's, that's kind of the ticket, you know, it's, if you're not catching bigger fish on terrestrials, it's because you're moving the fly too much (laughs) or you're taking the fly away from the fish. (laughs) Oh yeah, absolutely. I mean, and, and the other thing is, I think that, and you kind of covered this a little bit, but you know, you're, you're not, I mean, you'll get a big eat everyone every especially if there are multiple fish in the area and they feel like they've got competition yeah. to get up there and get the fly i mean you'll for sure get mm-hmm. a big eat um i had one on saturday where uh uh you know the biggest fish of the day literally free willied for my fly i mean it came up jumped straight <laughs> out of the air you know two foot in the air with my fly in its mouth i had to wait for him to hit the water again and then set the hook you know <laughs> um but you'll you'll also get a lot of a lot of takes uh, where they don't even disturb the surface of the water. You know, it's like they create yeah, a little... Yeah, they don't even... That's, that's right. They, they create and a little vacuum. Ones. Yeah, right. They'll open their mouth below the surface of the water and let your fly just sink down, you know, in that little vacuum. And, and that's when they've got, their, got, they've got your fly. So do you tie your patterns, your terrestrial patterns, with like a little maybe a piece of orange foam at the top or a piece of, always. Piece of white? Always. Is it always orange or do you like to use uh, something a little different? I tell you, I use orange the vast majority of the time, sometimes chartreuse, but I'll also sometimes put a white wing on it with that so I can really okay. see it well. Right. Um, yeah, because you're exact. I've had arguments with people in the boat. You got a fish. Oh, no, that was a, I mean, didn't take right. it. I said, yeah, oh, your, yeah, your fly line's going upstream. How did he do that? Well, because he's a fish and, you know, he doesn't have hands, so his mouth has got great dexterity. I don't know what to tell you. He, he, fish has got it. Right. So that happens regularly. Yeah, and and a lot of times the bigger fish will eat that way. I mean, you know, that's another thing. Almost I think all of them. Yeah, I think for maybe my first season, I had to have – shake you know shaken off probably 10 18 inch smallmouth because i thought that they were pumpkin seeds or you know little long-eared sunfish i thought there's no way a smallmouth could would do that you know i mean i my fly would just be gone and i would shake it free thinking that there's no way it was a smallmouth and then you know a couple years later and i'm kicking myself still you know so um so that's a good tip too for all the guys that are thinking well I've seen, you know, because Mr. Wiggly, have you heard, have you, I'm sure you've seen Mr. Wiggly. It's, it's, you know, all of a sudden people, everybody's talking about Mr. Wiggly, um, this, this terrestrial pattern that, you know, uh, I think the tight lines fly fishing company up in, you know, Green Bay, Wisconsin, you know, put together this terrestrial pattern and it's, it's a effective pattern for sure. But, you know, people are, people out there now are kind of starting to take note of, what terrestrial, you know, fly fishing is for smallmouth bass. And so they're trying to tie their own. So I think a great tip um, is if you're tying your own, you know, put that little piece of orange foam or put that little piece of chartreuse foam at the top and it almost acts like a strike indicator. You know, if you see that orange foam disappear, you got to fish. So, um, yeah, good stuff. But, uh, well, why don't you, why don't you go ahead and, uh, because I think we're getting kind of, close to uh maybe an hour here chad so why don't you why don't you go ahead and put out um some information about your about your guide business and where where people can get a hold of you um to book a trip obviously don't give out your cell phone uh number since you lost your phone today but uh but how however you want people to reach out to you and then we'll um we'll give you an opportunity to kind of uh, wrap it all up, but before people just sort of, uh, stop listening, why don't you put that stuff out? Um, so you can go to my website, uh, sugarcreekanglers.com. Um, you can message me there. Uh, you can also get me on Instagram, Chad Miller fly fishing, uh, Facebook, sugar Creek anglers. Um, and, uh, you can sign up for the newsletter also on uh the website as well uh, i mean i don't care i'll give out my telephone number i mean i'm gonna have it in okay. phone here a couple of days so it's good seven six five seven six five four zero one six zero three four you can text me or call me i, I don't care if i'm guiding i won't answer till the evening um but uh, yeah that's that's how you get me do you have do you have any availability left for 
for this year? I mean, do you have dates in like September and October for, you know, if somebody wants to come I've out? Got and... a few, I've got a few in August, a few more in September, but August is, um, I have a handful of days in August and a little more in September, but I have some days, but yeah, it's, it's, it's getting booked up. Well, I'll tell you what, I mean, uh, I, I would encourage, you know, guys that are kind of new to this, you know, guys that, and, and gals that are kind of new to, you know, to fly fishing and maybe new to smallmouth fly fishing. And, um, you know, I, I would encourage you to, to spend the money to get with Chad, um, and to go out and do it because, I think a day on the water with you doing this is going to increase their base of knowledge and, and you will literally probably jump two years of going out on your own uh, in one day of going out with Chad, you know, just the knowledge that you'll gain and, and just knowing the things to look for, the cast to make, the flies to use. And, and uh, you know, so I would highly encourage people to take advantage of of the resource that we have here in Chad and, uh, to go out, book a trip and, um, you know, because this, this can be, you know, and I'll speak from experience because I learned how to do this the hard way. I mean, you, you, you know, when you were in the shop, I think, and you know, you sold me my, the first fly rod I bought for myself, I bought from you. Um, and you kind of gave me some tips and told me what to do, but, uh, you know, it can be a, an extremely frustrating time of the year to be out fly fishing if you're not a very good fly fisherman yet. Um, in fact, I'd say it's one of the more frustrating times of the year if you don't really know what you're doing. And it can be one of the more rewarding times of the year if you do know what you're doing. So uh, take advantage of it. Book a trip with Chad. Um, you know, don't be, a, don't be a dick and hit him up on Instagram for tips and advice. Just book a trip with him. Uh, and anything that you need in the way of tips or advice you can get from this episode. So, um, anything else that you want to put out chat about any tips, advice, um, you know, any, any grievances you need to air or anything else that you want to say here before we, before we end the episode. Yeah, I think I said on an Instagram post, the next person that lulls me, I'm going to take a picture <laughs> of them and, and publicly shame them. Nice. And somebody did, and I didn't take a picture, so oh, I've that's probably, I've, uh, that's probably kept myself from doing that. So don't low hole me. <laughs> don't low hole him. Uh, and and oh, while I got you, and uh, while I got you on the phone, so I did the stretch. Um, it's like in the middle of the Darlington stretch uh, down to the Crawfordsville takeout um, yesterday, mm-hmm. and and I I bring this up on the episode only because you know people. People should know that you're also an advocate for Sugar Creek. I mean, that you're somebody who ha- kind of has your finger on the pulse of what's going on around the river as well. But um, I noticed that they're running commercial canoes like all the way up to 175 now. Have you, is that? I've never noticed that before. Is that is that new? Did they just start doing that, or am I crazy? No, they've they've done it for a few years. Have they really? Um, but I think but I think what's happened is is they've chosen to take more people up there and not put more people in at where they're located and take, take out the five mile float. Mm. So consequently there are more people going up there now. Um, I'm, I'm not happy about it because they should have no business putting people in there in low water. Oh, it's horrible. Uh, It can't can't be enjoyable. They're, They're spending half their time out of the canoe. I mean, if you know where you're going, you can snake through it. But, uh, no, it's, it, it's a, it's a problem. Yeah. And, and on top of that, they, you know, they, that's no longer a takeout, right? I mean, 175, you may have access there, but I mean, it's no longer a public, it's no longer a public put in or takeout there at 175. So, you know, it almost looks like the canoe company maybe paid for access on the condition that they block public access there or something, you know, I mean, it's very, uh. No. It's very strange, but yeah, it's it's not it's not good. I mean, you know, and I don't understand why it it can't be enjoyable. I mean, they're just dragging the whole time. Um, yeah, it's very frustrating. Well, the the owner the owner of that property, and I I do have permission, um, and have had for twenty four years. 
Right. I figured you still did. Yeah, he just, you know. he just had it. He just had it with the, with the trash and the, you know, I mean, it's always I don't, been, private, I don't blame him. I mean, these people, you know, people just have had, it. he's just had it. And, and so I'm, I'm going to discuss this canoe thing in the off season. It's, it's gotten, um, there's a point where it's not just not good for, for us, but it's just not good for the Creek. Sure. You can't have that many people in the creek. There's all sorts of things that happen. People are getting out of out of their canoes. They're walking into areas they shouldn't be. I guarantee you, they're traipsing over all those uh, long ear beds. I mean, long ear spawn the whole month of July. Right. And they're still on beds, and they're walking on those beds. It's just, you know, um, it's not a good. It's not good for conservation. That's for sure. Yeah. I mean, and I, you know. I'll, I'll say this. I mean, it might have sounded like I was complaining about the lack of public access there, but I completely get it. I mean, if I was a public land, if I was a, a landowner, a private landowner on the banks of Sugar Creek, um, you know, I I would completely understand somebody shutting off public access completely. I mean, the way that people treat it, you know, you got, you know, I've been down there before. There are people shooting up heroin down there, you know people smoking pot out there, people leaving trash, people driving back there when there's rain and rutting up his land and, you know, completely taking advantage of it and ruining it. So, you know, I completely understand why you would deny public access there. I'm just saying, I mean, uh, it's, it's, it's a double bad situation because not only is public access locked off there, but it seems to me that there are, there's been a, an incredible increase in the number of commercial canoers in that area as well. So it's like a, a double whammy, you know, for people who are, you know, responsible uh, stewards of the river. So, um, but anyways, Hey Chad, I, I really appreciate your time and uh, you know, thanks for coming on. And, and I hope that the listeners got as much out of it as I did because truly an extremely informative episode uh, a great resource, a, a wealth of knowledge, and uh, we really appreciate it, Chad. Thanks for having me. Okay. All right. Have a good night. Bye. Yep, you too. Well, that was the interview with Chad. Uh, thanks, everybody, for for listening, and as always, free the fighter. Um, I think that I've got an episode planned tomorrow night with John Lee, um, a guide on the Kalamazoo River, and I think he's got some uh, some issues going on in his waterway that I think need more attention than what it's, it's been given, uh, up to this point. So we're going to try and have him on the podcast and talk about what's going on with the Kalamazoo. Uh, thanks everybody for listening as always. And as I said, free the fighter.